welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's very exciting stuff today because it's Wood Talk number 200 for October 14th, 2014. On today's show, we're really focused on you guys, you know, because this wouldn't the show wouldn't be here without the audience participation. We really appreciate it. And we're 200 shows into this game. So we'll give ourselves a little bit of a, a pat on the back here, but not too much because we really want to focus on answering your questions. Uh, so real quick, guys, 200 episodes. I know, Shannon, you haven't been here for all of them, but at this point still the lion's share, I would say. Only the good ones. Only the good ones. The show actually started when Shannon joined. You know, there's been so many emails that have come in that have, have said that, and immediately I delete those. <laughs> Whoops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we never get to see them. Uh, but you know what? We did actually get quite a few emails with suggestions about things to do for this 200th show. Uh, we appreciate those, but a, a lot of them contained a lot of work on our part, and <laughs> we're kind of we're kind of lazy. I'll admit that. Um, yeah, if you haven't noticed in 200 episodes, our, our lack of uh, work ethic... <laughs> yeah, it's not very strong. Uh, but seriously, though, we, we really appreciate it. And we just decided, we, th- we thought about what, what is the core of this show, what makes it what it is, and really the core is you guys. Cheese. Cheese and oh. you guys. And uh, we always have, we talk about this all the time, we've got this scrap pile. Basically, it's our mailbag that just never gets any smaller, keeps growing. And once in a while, we do that, that sort of mailbag episode to try to answer as many questions as possible and do the best service to you guys that we can. And that's what we're going to do today. So that's how we're going to spend our big 200th show is answering a ton of questions. Which will not even put a dent into the scrap pile. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, right now, if it was a real bag, uh, St. Nick would be like, um, can I borrow that? <laughs> Seriously. All right. So there's going to be uh, that and a bunch more coming up. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Bruso Hardware is one of our great sponsors today. How many hours did you invest in your last project? Why not finish it with hardware equal to your efforts? Bruso has been making high-precision hardware here in the U.S. for over 20 years. The entire line is available in brass and stainless steel at bruso.com. And as a special offer to Woodtalk listeners, use the code WOODTALK at checkout for 10% off. And we're also sponsored by ArborTech. Now, the new ArborTech Contour Random Sander is the ideal tool for all your sanding jobs. It molds to the shape of your sculpted forms for effective sanding and features a powerful random sanding action. It doesn't burn or dig in the edges, and it fits into any standard angle grinder. Check it out online at www.arbortech.usa.com. And by Festool. Some stool, some stools, some <laughs> yeah. stools huh? stand apart. Those festools, some tools stand apart the most when they're working all together. Explore full system design to deliver more precise results at festoolusa.com. Yes, right. they made me read the power tool. <laughs> That's right, on purpose. And uh, we'd also like to thank Timothy Klusendorf, Peter Brown. I used to have a drum instructor named Peter Brown, uh, David Keen, and Ulf Brunstedt. Thank you, everybody, for uh, supporting the show. And you can do that, too, at woodtalkshow.com. Look over in that left-hand column, and you'll see some donation links. Uh, And that's what those guys did. We always appreciate that kind of support. And, uh, you know, I also wanted to ask Matt about uh, his his random contours and, uh, uh, what is it, shaping to his sculpted forms. I know. Tell me about I love Sounds like something that's right up your alley. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to start a Tumblr all about sculpted <laughs> forms and, and random sanding right into them. That'd Wonderful. be awesome. <laughs> nice. All right. So uh, like I mentioned at the top, we're going to skip our normal format, uh, what's on the bench and all that good stuff. We'll, we'll be back to normal for show 201, but let's jump right into 
the email because there's so much of it. Uh, we have like 15 or 16 or 17 questions right here and we will just keep going until uh, we either hit like the hour mark or one of us passes out. I think one of us is going to pass out before that's going to happen. Quite, it is a lot of pressure. Yeah, quite possible. So Matt, why don't you kick it off? All right. Well, hey, we have this first question of the day of our 200th episode, our special 200th episode Yay. just for you, the listeners. We and it comes in from 200 Robert. questions. 200 questions. No. 200 questions on 200. <laughs> no. Well, there's three of us, so it would be uneven. That would uh, definitely be true. an uneven well, number. Well, then that, that's why we can't do it. All right. We'd have to answer <laughs> a the fraction only of a question each. Sorry. It's a math thing, guys. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. All right. So the first question comes in from Robert, and he says, I've learned the value of dry-fitting parts. Don't ask how. My question is, when you have a project that consists of several sub-assemblies, do you need to dry-fit the entire project at once, or can I just put the sub-assemblies together? For example, I am now starting a craftsman-style end table. I plan on building the right and left halves as sub-assemblies and then put them together with stretchers, drawer opening, and a bottom shelf. Do I just do the sides or do I dry fit the entire table? Now, Robert, I also have learned the value of dry fitting parts, and you're welcome to ask more about it, just not in today's episode. Uh, I always suggest doing as much of a complete dry fit as possible. So if this means doing a dry fit of the sub-assemblies and then taking those sub-assemblies and dry fitting them together into one entire project, it sounds really time-consuming and Maybe a little overwhelming for all of the clamps. Maybe you have to go out and buy more clamps. But yes, I would suggest doing that because it doesn't hurt to take this time to figure out what's going to go together and how everything works in in position. And then even afterwards, after I take everything apart and then glue up those sub-assemblies, once those sub-assemblies are glued together, I will do another dry fit of everything coming together because there is always the possibility that when you're gluing those dry assembly, uh, those sub-assemblies, something might just get tweaked just a little bit so it doesn't hurt to be overly cautious and do several if necessary. Plus, again, it also helps you to kind of gauge the time that it's going to take to do this. So. Mm-hmm. That is what I would typically do. And you might notice as this goes on, I have a a bit of a a theme with the questions that I've selected today for our listeners. Mine have a little bit of a connection too, a little bit of a theme riding through it. Um, You know what else I might recommend uh, that I like to do? If I have two, let's say, side sub-assemblies, as you're gluing them together, it can actually be pretty helpful to take the other parts and put them, like attach them as a dry assembly. So you've got glue on the side parts, but let's say your long rails connecting to the other side, those are left dry, but you still have them as part of the assembly when you're doing the glue up. Um, that can actually help avoid those surprise things that happen when you just assemble the sub-assembly on its own. Things move around a little bit. Well, if you have those other parts dry fitted while you're gluing it up, you can sometimes prevent things from shifting in ways that you wouldn't want them to. Very nice. Sweet. Yeah. Great idea. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. All right. Yeah. Uh, got one here from uh, from Dusty. He says, it seems like everyone jumps through hoops to hide end grain. I personally think that it can look really neat if treated as a design element correctly and finished correctly, i.e. sanded to a higher grit and then, uh, then the face and long grain. My question is, do you think that this is just an old bias? As in, as in the thought that all the old furniture builders hide end grain, so we have to do it now? Or do you think it's legitimately ugly? Interested to hear your thoughts. All right, so I puzzled over this for a little bit because when when he says that everyone jumps through hoops to hide end grain, my first reaction was, "We do <laughs> what?" <laughs> right? Um, honestly, Did that memo go out. I mean, maybe we're looking at different furniture or hanging out with different different friends. 
um, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, uh, I've I, got a few friends that are a little uppity like that. They're like, end grain. End oh. <laughs> grain. How oh, awful. No, th- there's, definitely, there's definitely an historical <laughs> bias to that. And I think he, he alludes to that. Certainly Queen Anne period and Chippendale period, they did everything they could to cover it up okay. with things. But, you know, you look at any contemporary stuff and I don't think so. And that's probably why, uh, why I don't see it because um, I generally do contemporary work. Um, so for me, end grain is something to be embraced as a natural part of using a natural material. Um, I don't really work to hide it. Now, if it's something where I'm trying to make it not look like end grain or at least minimize its its appearance, yeah, I do exactly what you're talking about. I will sand it to a higher grit, sometimes give it a pre-seal of shellac or something like that and prevent it from darkening up the way that it does. But ultimately, uh, the end grain in many cases gets hidden just by virtue of the type of joinery or the assembly that you're creating. It just winds up being hidden naturally. Um, but I never go out of my way to really hide end grain unless there's some sp- very specific design thing that I have to to hit. Uh, and it's not really hiding it because it's ugly. It might be hiding it because I'm looking for a continuous grain pattern and I don't want it interrupted by end grain. Because usually if you're interrupting something with end grain, it's actually a different piece of wood coming in. So you structurally may not be able to avoid it, but it might interrupt a face or make something just look odd. So you find ways structurally, but visually, you know, it is what it is. And most normal furniture that I build, if the end grain shows as part of the normal structure, who cares? That's what I said. Yeah. Who cares? And, and how often is it when you have uh, somebody that you build the piece for and they're not familiar with woodworking or anything and you point out and you go, I'm sorry, the end grain's exposed. They're like, the what? The who now? The what? The what? <laughs> grain what? <laughs> All right. That's it. All right. Well, this comes from Keith. He says, I'm thinking of giving hand cut miters a try and I want to build <gasps> a simple picture frame. Thought this would be a good way to try the hand tool approach. Really looking for some advice to get started. Well, first of all, that's a terrible joint <laughs> to begin the hand tool <laughs> approach because miters are hard. I don't care if you cut them by hand or power, miters are hard. Picture frame miters are even harder. When you've got to get all four corners to line up perfectly, I think that's probably one of the hardest joints that you can cut. I don't know. Could be wrong, but I think they are. I'm, I'm going to stick my neck out and say it's the hardest joint you can cut. I know. It's easy for me. I just yeah. set, set my saw to 45 and go, but... Yeah, whatever. Shut up. <laughs> um, Brought to you, you know, by Festool. Even then, even then, I bet you <laughs> that's what it is. It's that Festool. That's it. Uh, it's that special stool you sit on when you cut it. I, I would bet even then there's a lot of people who have trouble. You know, I think it's one of those things where once you get it dialed in right mm-hmm. on whatever you're using, table saw or whatever, but even then, I think a lot of people struggle with this. So, If you're going to give it a try with the hand tool approach, I think the best thing you need to recognize in getting started is layout lines and use a knife on your layout lines and make those knife lines nice and deep because what you're going to want to do, whether you're going to use a shooting board or you're going to plane it, you know, without the use of a shooting board, you want those nice deep knife lines exactly at 45 degrees or if you're not going to do 45, some complementary angle so that as you're removing the wood, you can very clearly see when you've got that one consistent plane. Then I would say cheat. Once you've got it somewhat fitting, go in and remove just a little bit of material in the interior of the joint so that it gets out of the way of the edges of the joint and it closes up nicely. Um, As far as cutting them, I wouldn't obsess over getting that cut exactly dead on perfect off the saw because That's hard to do, and you're going to end up having to clean it up with a hand plane anyway. So get close with a saw, and if you've got those nice, deep knife lines, 
you can use a chisel or use a plane or use a shooting board to dial it in for that perfect fit later. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think if I were to cut them by hand, I think the first thing I'd build before the miters is a shooting board, <laughs> you yeah. know, just to kind of bail me out of those situations where you need to just take a little bit off, work your way back. And as long as you know that shooting board is dead on, then even if your sawing technique is off, like mine would be, I would definitely be depending on that shooting board. The thing is, though, is it just the exercise of doing it without a shooting board is always, it's kind of good for you. Whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger because there will be a time like this dining table that I just built where those miters were way too big. The parts were way too big to fit on a shooting board. And the only way to do it was with, you know, a smoothing plane and my knife line. So it's, it's one of those things where that fundamental skill behind the shooting board is kind of nice to know because it, it'll help you one of these days. Yeah. You should try a Festool Capex. I hear they're great. Yeah. <laughs> Spinny blade, spinny does it, blade. Does it come with the stool or? It does. They all every festool comes with a footstool. So well, you know, I think with 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 your uh, treadle lathe experience, you should be able to somehow rig that up and have a festool <laughs> treadle. There you go. Ooh, I like so, that. Yeah. So work on that one. Maybe you can get a whole new product going with them. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, let's sure. move on to the next question that I have here, and this one comes from Walter, and maybe this is where you're going to notice my pattern in here. He says, "Conventional wisdom." seems to be to apply glue to both surfaces being glued together. Is this really necessary? Alternative wording to question, glue on one surface or two. I think Walter's concerned that maybe we can't follow certain words coming together. <laughs> so, uh, so again, glue on one surface or two. You know, when it comes down to it, the way I look at this is the short answer is uh, learn to apply just enough glue to make it work. That seems to be my my philosophy when it comes to this. I've tried both uh, single surface and double, and I found that the only thing that matters is that I apply just enough to the surface to make them stick together when the glue dries. So frequently adding glue to both edges typically will result in a mess that means I'm cleaning up more of it than I care to at the end, which could be all sorts of other issues later on down the road if you don't get all that glue cleaned up when it comes to the finishing process, etc. And also the other thing I've noticed is when I apply too much glue, which typically happens when I put you know, uh, supposedly enough on both surfaces, uh, is I get slippage when it comes to uh, putting the clamps on there. Occasionally mm-hmm. the piece will slightly move back and forth. Um, so that's another concern that I have. Last time, I know we had a question, and I think Shannon and I, you and I kind of went back and forth a little bit on this, like the idea of how much glue is just enough. And it was like a thinly veiled version. So you have enough on there. It's a nice wet surface. But at the same time, you can kind of see through it. It's not so opaque. It's just transparent enough. And that seems to be... Uh, uh, more than enough. I know I used a, a, a dancing veil girl as a reference in there to think about it, but that's yes, go back did. and listen. Nice. It's a, a little Easter egg from 199. Go back and check it out, folks. Cool. All right. Next one comes in from Adam. He says, my question pertains to hybrid woodworking from a dust collection perspective. I've been a nearly pure hand tool enthusiast in my short career, and I've recently entered the power tool world by purchasing a router and soon a router table. Whether using this tool freehand with a guide or mounted to a table, I'm stuck on the best approach to dust collection. Uh, For just this one tool, would you recommend I get a HEPA dust extractor? Um, He's looking at Festool and Bosch. Uh, Stick with a basic shop vac or invest now in a Cyclone-style dust collector. My main goal is safety in a workshop uh, in the basement, and while pricey, the extractor seems to be well-suited for a dedicated attachment to freehand router jigs or uh, uh, table dust collection, perhaps better than a shop vac for particle size coverage. On the other hand, a cyclone may be overkill for a single tool, but maybe minimize the, down co- the cost down the road. 
when I win a saw stop at the raffle at uh, WIA. All right, Adam. You know, for for me, I think when people when people first start out, I think it's a great idea to start using that shop vac because we all kind of need a shop vac anyway, right? You've got to pick up dust and, and debris from the ground, so why not start with that? Uh, and adapt it to your portable hand tools. Now, dust extractors are great, but they're a heck of a lot more expensive, and um, it's something to upgrade to eventually. So I would start with, you know, you're just getting started here with these power tools. Get used to the tools. Get used to what your needs are, and you might know a little bit more by the time uh, you get ready to the point you want to plunk down three or 400 bucks on one of these dust extractors. Now, if you use your shop vac, get some of the filter bags. Don't just trust the cylindrical filter that usually comes with these things get yourself a a filter bag and that should be plenty safe in terms of like whatever dust it collects. That's not going to wind up back in the shop environment. You should be fine with that. Your bigger problem is probably going to be finding adapters to make sure that this thing fits on all of your tools, but it can be done. You can cobble it together. Sometimes there's fittings that you could buy to make it fit. Um, but I really think the dust vac, um, or the, uh, Shop vac is probably the way to go uh, just to, to start out there. Um, and I do think Festool makes a great extractor. They've got uh, a nice add-on feature with the, the outlet that you can plug into so the vac turns on at the same time and all kinds of crazy little doodads that you can add on to it if you wanted to. Um, but ultimately, shop vac, we can all, you know, most of us already have one. So all you have to do is buy that filter bag, get the fittings, and you're in business. And think about adding, you know, dust extractor later on down the road. You know, it's funny, the whole, the whole buy your last tool first thing doesn't really seem to apply in dust collection. Like, just get something. Just get something that sucks. <laughs> yeah, just get it started. You know, actually, I was just thinking the other thing. We, we talk sometimes about those separators, the cyclone separators. Um, he did mention a cyclone, but I think he's talking about big school, like, you know, hardcore dust collection, big cyclones. Um, what I would recommend is, is hold off on that until you truly need it. Um, but get yourself one of the cyclone separators and add that to your shop vac and you'll have a lot more fun with the process. I mean, it might be if you're mobile and you need to move around, uh, that can sometimes be an issue, but um, both uh, Clearview Cyclones and uh, Oneida have have some of the best ones on the market that just dump the stuff into a bucket and that'll save you on those filter bags as well. So I think that's a good starting setup. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. All right. This next question comes from Peter. He says, for my first hand plane, I built the Ron Hawk Krenoff kit with some help and many thanks to Matt's videos. I saw good those. Yeah, you're yeah, welcome. Good. Mm-hmm. Din, Dim's was good. I know. So, <clears throat> uh, let's see. He's loving his plane. So after the episode the other week when we talked about the new customizable Veritas planes, it got me wondering, other than the standard arguments found elsewhere, like heft or it won't wear as quickly, what are the big advantages of going with a metal plane over a wooden one? It seems for the cost of the iron and the cap, around $50-ish, plus some scrap wood, I can build a hand plane and have it fully customizable for whatever I want, as opposed to around $300 plus for a new customizable or even a standard Lee Nielsen or Veritas. I'm just starting out the tool collection, and I'm not opposed to spending the money, but only if it's worth it. To me, it doesn't seem like it would be, why could it be worth it to someone else? Okay, this is a, a bit of a, a hornet's nest, but um, I would never say that one would be – it's hard to say one would be a big advantage of going wood over metal because the the efficient out of the metal plane would say the big advantage is going with uh, – excuse me, scratch that, reverse it. The efficient out of the wooden plane would say, oh, there's so many more advantages of going with wood over metal. A lot of it I do think is a personal preference. 
However, when you're getting started, the metal planes have adjustability that the wooden planes just don't have. Now, that's not to say that a wooden plane can't be adjusted as finely or as precisely as a metal plane. There's just a lot more kind of warm fuzziness to it. You're, you're tapping it with a mallet. You're setting the, the parallelness or the angle of the blade with a mallet. Light tap and a heavier tap and a light tap and checking it and tapping it again. Backing it out, tapping the back of the plane. Some planes do that better than others. A metal plane, you twist the thingy. <laughs> you twist it the other way. And, and that's what it does. You know, you've got the lateral adjuster. You slide it and it changes the angle of the blade. It's so much more quantifiable and so much easier to wrap your head around as, as a new user. Hell, as an advanced user, it's so much easier to make those little adjustments, especially on the fly. Now, that being said, for somebody that really knows what they're, do, what they're doing and uses a lot of wooden planes, they can probably adjust just as quickly. The one disadvantage, I would say, on the wooden side is you got to have that mallet. It's just one more thing. Not that it's a huge deal to reach over and pick up the mallet, you know, an inch away from you, but it, it, it's separate from the plane itself. So if you say you take your planes on the road, make sure you take your mallet or you're going to have trouble. So, but there's so many other things. There's a lot of people who really love that the feeling you get from a wooden plane on a wooden surface. Um, they don't rust, you know, that that's really, really nice. But here's the thing you gotta, you gotta build it or you gotta call Scott Meek or somebody like that <laughs> to have him build it for you. And in which case you're going to spend just as much, you know, to have somebody build it. It sounds to me, Peter is somebody who really enjoys building this tools and really likes working with the tool he built with himself. And, that is kind of just as much of the fulfillment, if you will, um, of using it. So it sounds like he's found what he needs to do. And I don't think you really need to mess around too much. If you're getting good results from it, don't worry about it. Stick to it. Um, it is one of those things that I often caution new people with hand planes to go down the wooden hand plane route because it is a lot of finesse. I have really just started going down that route and I love them. I, I love the, the, I feel like I can adjust a lot more finely, a wooden plane that is over a metal plane, but it's taken a lot of kind of playing around with the mallet. And every time I change mallets, which I don't recommend doing, it be, it's the learning curve starts over because the, the heft, the weight, the mass behind that mallet head is different. So when I tapped it, you know, this way before, and I tap it the same way with a different mallet, I get a different adjustment. So there's a lot of, a lot of stuff, a lot of variables. Yes. That the word you're looking for? But touchy feely is what I mean. I can't, you can't describe it. You just got to do it. So if you're having good luck with it already, I wouldn't, don't mess with it, man. So what I'm hearing is that wooden bodied planes are for uh, woodworkers who are more emotional and touch with their feelings. <laughs> Absolutely. Is that what it Most is? Most definitely. Most oh. definitely. Well-adjusted woodworkers. Oh, well, we don't know any of them in our group. Definitely not. <laughs> that sounds Sweet. like a podcast, the well-adjusted woodworker. <laughs> jump on that. We've got minimalist woodworkers and naked woodworkers. The drunken drunken woodworkers. woodworkers. Drunken woodworkers, yeah. Mm. Now we Excuse need well-adjusted woodworkers. I'm going to head over to GoDaddy.com right now and get my domain name for I'm that one. there, man. I'm already there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sweet. Well, hey, let's move on to this question from Glenn. And Glenn says, I'm building a traditional Rubo workbench, and I'm getting close to final assembly, and I'm concerned about choosing the right glue. 
I won't have much help during the assembly and I'm worried about the open time of the glue. Specifically, what is open time and how exact is it? Because of the open time difference, I was thinking of using liquid hide glue versus type bond three, which I've used for the rest of the bench. But I don't know if the extra five minutes that are advertised actually means just that. If you could explain it, I would appreciate it. So, uh, oh boy, here we go. This is probably going to really mess it up. Now, the first thing I'm going to do is define open time. And I think that's a really loosely uh, used term. And it's more of an approximation of the amount of time between when the glue is applied and when it starts to become tacky and harden. Typically, I found the open time times on bottles are, are more of an approximation versus an actual amount of time. And in, in my own experience, it depends quite a bit on the environment of the shop that more than anything else. Mm -hmm. For example, a shop, say, in an arid, dry environment such as Mark's shop, which I've had no experience with. I imagine the glue uh, probably sets up pretty fast. It's about half of the advertised number that they give you. Right. And see, in in a shop like where I'm at, uh, even year round, and I've even noticed that in the winter when the forced air heater is on and it's still technically far more dry than it usually is, I still have a, a bit of a wiggle room in there that follows along with about what the recommendations are coming. In fact, I, I brought up a thing from Type Bond since uh, Glenn mentioned Type Bond, and it looks like the vast majority of the PBA glues are saying are about five to 10 minutes. In my own experience, I probably had like easily 15 minutes of time in there. Often it depends on the amount of glue that I've added. So, Kind of going back to that last question we did there, um, if I have more glue on there, the open time is just that much more because it's it's not drying out as fast. But I think it really, really depends more on your shop environment, what the humidity is like, um, and, and, and things like that. So that probably, again, it's going to give you a little more wiggle room in there. I have such a hard time with given numbers when you see the uh, manufacturer recommendations because so much is a variable in there. Maybe even the wood. If the wood is like super dry, it's going to soak that glue right into it. Mm. So the best bet, if anything, if you have a really large assembly, one of the things I like to do, and this is probably a a really good thing to do, is to do smaller sub-assemblies. So if the part you're working on the most, Glenn, here is, say, the the bench top, that's the one that I would be freaking out the most about when it comes to open times if I didn't have any help getting my clamps in place. I would probably think more about maybe making up two or three, maybe even four uh, sub-assemblies where I have more of an, an opportunity to get those clamps on, get it in place, and then come back together and assemble everything later on down the road. That might be a really good strategy to go if you're concerned about that open time. Now, when it comes to um, the hide glue, I don't have any experience with that. Shannon, I know you do, and typically what we hear about the hide glue is that there is definitely a far greater open time than anything else on that or or compared to all the other glues. Uh, What would you say would be the typical one on that? Is that like what, wait, 24 hours? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Just, just leave it open. Go after it. Well, the distinction should be made between liquid, liquid high glue and hot high glue um, because they have different open times and um, they're pretty dramatically different. The hot high glue is going to tack up much, much faster. Um, I think even faster than a lot of the PVAs. That's why a lot of people like to use it for things like um, marquetry because they can set it in place and literally just hold it until it starts to tack up and then move on. Excuse me. Um, I don't – I haven't found that it's so much dramatically different. And let me first of all say I can't remember if I've ever read the label on a bottle of glue. 
right? <laughs> it's, it's it's like directions that come with tools. You're missing out, Shannon. There's I some, know. There's some good there's, stuff on there. I'm going to send you the PDF that, that's coming from Titebond. Let me tell you, there is – Can you I get haven't that seen on reading Audible? like this since – uh, Oh, yeah. Well, do they have it on Audible? That'd be awesome. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'd read it. I'll listen to it. Maybe, it's but, right up yeah. there with like the whole entire um, uh, Vampire Werewolf series. Oh, right on. Yeah. Um, I don't use high glue because of its longer open time. I use high glue for, for other reasons. Um, I have not experienced such a dramatically different open time. What I should say more importantly is I have not experienced such a dramatically short open time with other glues that have forced me to say I need something with a longer open time. You know, I built a Rubo bench and glued up, laminated up the top, and I did it all um, in a series of sub-assemblies, mainly because it was so damn heavy to do as one big glue-up that I did it over a series of glue-ups. I also didn't have enough clamps to do all that. So I think I did my 24-inch top in three different, um, three different glue-ups. Plus, it was also really useful to do a glue up, take it out of the clamps and run it through the planer to kind of even it out a little bit mm-hmm. before you go on to the next glue up. So it serves multiple purposes there. Um, I think anytime you're doing a glue up that you really are worried about this open time, you need to rethink your glue up. There's something something wrong there. You're trying to do too much, frankly. Not if you're in Arizona. I, yeah, two, well, I, I glue two boards together and it's like, hmm, should I use epoxy? Hmm. <laughs> now, now, does the glue actually make it from the tip onto the wood before as it dries? As it's dripping down, it just hardens into and it goes <laughs> plink right on the ground. Um, just for reference, the tight bond liquid hide glue is listed at 10 minutes for open assembly time and old brown glue is 30 minutes. What? And, uh, I do hmm. believe I the, believe the, that. Even, and if he's comparing the liquid hide glue to the tight bond three, if I remember right, tight bond three is even like maybe 10 minutes at the max, 10 to 15, according to the manufacturer. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I would say if he's really concerned about it, I think one of these brown, like the old brown glue is probably a good option. That's on my list of things to buy. I have never used it before, but a lot of times I go to use something that need that longer open time. Maybe that's a better option than the epoxy that I always go to. Well, you know, I can it, tell you to skip the tight bond high glue. The viscosity of old brown is head and shoulders above. It's just so much easier to use. It flows yeah. out so much easier. It brushes on so much easier. Um, nice. I didn't realize there's such a dramatic difference, but there is a lot more urea in the um, the tight bond stuff from what I've been told. Yeah. What I've been told, I don't know that's a fact or not, but I, the I got to go back to though 10 minutes. If they're saying 10 minutes is the open time on tight bond, it's a long time. It is really think a long about, time. Think about like how long does it take you to glue something up? For something like a bench top, yeah, because you're just basically rolling it out on each piece, putting the sandwich together and going. Uh, I mean, so, the something thing, the longest thing, most difficult, yeah, longest thing we ever glued up was a cutting board. There's all those little strips and doing both sides of it and then flipping them around. And still, I think that was like six minutes. Well, I think <laughs> I think part of the issue too is unforeseen circumstances. So especially if you are using water-based type on type glue, you get that stuff on there. Maybe you've got like a, a full dovetailed case to put together. Well, the longer you take, if you take the lion's share of that 10 minutes, those joints are not going to be so happy going together because they've sucked up a lot of that moisture. Right. You know, so you're going to be doing a lot of, uh, you know, uh, trying to clamp across from corner to corner to make sure it's nice and square. Um, uh, then for me, a lot of times I can eat up that 10 minutes pretty quickly just by being finicky about where I'm applying pressure with my clamps. 
Um, so it just kind of makes me, you know, just feel a little bit better and, and a little more confident going into any glue up, knowing that I have more than 10 minutes or at least a full 10. Give me a full 10 minutes. That's I'd like the full amount on the bottle, please. Yeah. Now, when you put the glue on, do you guys ever feel like, you know, roll that clock and go? I've never felt that way, but it would be really no. interesting. <laughs> no, no. Okay. And, and, and it could be just because it's really humid here. Um, yes. and it's just never been an issue. Yeah. You guys should try my shop once in a while. It'd be funny. Mm, no. It'd be funny. I'll, I would love I'll, it. I'll wait till the winter when it's four outside. I'll, <laughs> there you I'll go. try it then. It ought to be about the same relative yeah. humidity. Right? Come out for I, a I've, visit. I've never found myself in the shop going, man, I wish I was like in something that feels like a conven- convention, a confection oven. <laughs> that would be really fun. That's what it feels like. All right, let's go to the next one. I've got uh, Chris's question here on Cordesan White Oak. He says, Cordesan White Oak is beloved by some woodworkers for its flecking. That's F L E C K. Thank you. Thank you for the pronunciation back up on that. <laughs> flecking. Uh, what would be your go-to finish to make sure the flecking is noticeable uh, and even more dramatic upon completion of your latest project? And then in if your mother-in-law came to you and said she wanted the project to be painted, yes, I said the dreaded word painted, is there a finishing method that would give the appearance of painted but yet allow for the beauty of the wood to show through? Uh, how you, How we all love our mother-in-laws. You know, my mother-in-law is actually great. She doesn't bug me at all. She's totally cool. Very laid back lady. I like her. Yeah, mine too. And she has a house in Maine, so I'm always nice to her. Mm, you got to love when people have Maine houses and uh, backup houses. Um, yeah, I, I would just, I just want to just say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. So quarter sawn white oak, Rayflex. Those are very cool. Now here, here's the cool thing about Rayflex. Now in the past, traditionally, they might've done fuming on that. And you tend to see that the, the flex may not necessarily change as much as the rest of the wood when they go through that fuming process. Well, the cool thing is when you hit it with dyes, glazes, things like that, you dye the background, but the flex seem to just the composition of the wood in that spot doesn't really accept the color and the stain in the same way that the background wood does. So just a simple dye solution can make a, a big change in the impact of those flex. So I'm going to give you a link. I'll put that in the show notes to a Jeff Jewett article. It's a very old one, uh, but very good showing his mission style finish, trying to replicate kind of the old stickly finish using commonly available dye solutions. I believe trans tint is the base of the, the color change. And then also some glazing can be added. And he shows the the reactions that you get and how different it can look with and without stain. Uh, of course, the other thing is the type of finish you use because an oil-based finish I find tends to really give you the most sense of depth and a lot of times that's what makes those reflex really pop out is when they have an oil-based finish on them. So for me, that's kind of the way that I like to go even after you do that staining process. But you definitely want to check out that link that I will uh, send you. Now, as far as the paint goes, a couple different things that you can do and you may, you're may you going to have to do a lot of practice boards on this to, to see you know what your mother-in-law thinks about it. Um, one thing that I just used recently that I think is a pretty good option is milk paint. The great thing about milk paint is you're adding pigment and color, but you can really dilute it down. So it almost becomes like a stain of sorts or a whitewash type effect where you're adding the color and just depending on how thick you apply it, you can get a a color reaction on the surface that either hides the grain, masks it, or lets it show through. Uh, And if you go too light, you do one coat, well then do a second coat. Afterwards, you can keep piling on until you get the color and the effect you want. And that wood grain will peek through that milk paint layer, which is pretty cool. As an alternative, I like to, like when I've had painted projects in the past, one of my favorite things to do was add pigments to lacquer. And then you use the lacquer as a toner. 
Um, and just to clarify, this is completely separate from the milk paint discussion as an alternative. Um, so put the pigment into the lacquer, spray it on, and you would want to experiment with how much pigment to put in the, the can of lacquer so you get the right color effect. But with light toning coats, you can do the same thing. You're building up layers of pigment on top of the wood. The more pigment, the less you see the wood, the more you mask it. So you can just play around with the formulation and get something that looks good. Make it, make sure your mother-in-law likes it because that's what matters. And, uh, and I think both of those would be two reasonable options for you. I'm done now. It oh. puts the lotion in the basket. <laughs> Sorry. That's all I could think of <laughs> while, while you were saying that. It was yeah. just anyway. So this comes from Sean. He says, I am a self-taught and for no particular reason, I am a self-taught. I am self-taught. Okay. I am self-taught and for no particular reason. On <laughs> today's started. episode, Shannon learns to read. <laughs> wow. Okay. He's always started his saw cuts on the corner nearest me. That does not seem to be the method I have seen on a number of videos with the cut starting on the far corner. Wait, he starts his cuts nearest you? Nearest me. Yeah. He comes oh. all the way into my shop. And wow. It's really annoying. He, point, Get away. he Get points away. it toward Maryland. That's interesting. Okay. You yeah. must have that long saw that uh, Roy Underhill had. Uh, <laughs> <Nielsen make form. laughs> nice. All righty. Is there a real advantage to cutting, starting the cut on the far corner? I am early in the learning process and now would be the time to switch if there was a good reason to do so. Uh, no, there is not a good reason to do so. Um, other than it's a good idea to be able to do both. Because you're going to find there are certain times when I start my cut on the corner nearest me, and there are times when I start the cut on the corner farthest, farthest from <laughs> farthest. I think that's a word, right? In, in the forest, <laughs> and the tree falls, and no one hears it. So it is. There are even times when I do both. Um, I actually had a video that went up, and I, I don't think it went into my feed. It was just a short little thing I put on Facebook. But for wider board cuts, I'll usually start on the the corner nearest. And then I'll go over to the opposite corner, the one farthest from me, and connect the lines in the middle. And that's a really good way to get a nice square cut across a really wide board. There are certainly instances where being able to start on the far corner and kind of drawing the curve back along the knife line can be easier to see and easier to control based upon the direction the wood grain is running, the angle of the boards in the vise, how the light is striking in it, what the humidity is that day. Sometimes it just feels better. It feels more accurate to start on the far side. Other times I like to start on the near side. Like you, that is what I always did. And I started to hear things through like, um, uh, what was it? The essential woodworker by Robert Waring. He always says, start on the far side. So I tried it and I was like, oh, you know, there's merit to this, but it is one of those things where if you're more comfortable one way, don't fight it. Um, if you're getting good results, starting on the near side, don't fight it. But I do urge you to give it a shot. You might be surprised that there will be times when it's easier to start on the far side and draw the curve back towards you. I really don't think there is an advantage that you could say universally it makes more sense to start near or start far. Hmm. This episode of Sesame Street is brought to you by... I was going to say the Neanderthal Guide to Speaking English is brought to you by... And I heard another podcast name out of there, Woodworking from the Far Side. Ooh, I like that, that might be another good one. Gary Larson yeah. might have a problem with that. Maybe. You know, one thing I do want to point out here is I think as Shannon was struggling there at some point, we have to throw some sympathy, uh, I think, to the three of us because we usually never answer this many questions. So it's like exhausting at this point. <laughs> it is a little tiring. I'm looking at the list and there's a lot more. So let's hurry up. 
All right. Well, hey, folks, we have one here from Craig. And Craig says, hey, guys, I have a question about parallel clamps. I have about 10 jet parallel clamps. And my question is them being actually parallel. I assume by the name of these clamps, they are supposed to provide parallel clamping pressure, thus Ah. avoiding slippage. And practice, I find this not to be the case. Whenever I am gluing up two faces and use these clamps, no matter what I do, once I start applying clamping pressure, the boards will shift. Is there a trick to getting these to actually clamp parallel? Now, by that little insertion from Mark there, uh, I think we already know the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, we should probably say that, you know, parallel clamps are called this because according to a definition I found online where you always get the most accurate information, the clamping jaws will always clamp directly parallel to each other. And the idea is that if both of your jaws clamp exactly parallel parallel to each other and the angle between the clamp bar and the jaws are, are 90 degrees, the clamping pressure when applied should be equal over the entire clamp surface engaged with the wood. So now, if I haven't lost you at this point, maybe I will with this question here. Uh, from your description, what I'm thinking is happening is that the slippage might have to do with the amount of glue on the wood versus the clamp themselves. I'm sure maybe the clamps a little bit has something to do with it. I don't use parallel clamps uh, because I'm just not that cool. Uh, but it's not infrequent to have boards move when I'm applying pressure if I've used too much glue. Also, I found that if I don't want the boards to move, sometimes I need to apply equal uh, apply equalish pressure when I'm uh, with two clamps simultaneously or just enough to grip the board with the first one and then apply more pressure with the second one and then come back and, and tighten both of them if necessary. I think sometimes if I'm applying that first clamp, I, I notice I get the most slippage, one, when I use too much glue, and two, if I really start cranking down on that very first clamp, I am going to in, in, uh, unavoidably have a little bit of slippage in there. But again, if I put the two clamps and tighten them, start to tighten them kind of equally at the same time, not a lot of pressure on both of them, but just enough, they tend to offset the pressure pulling one way or the other, and I get the pieces to stay where I am. But that also means that you have to be somewhat ambidextrous, which I'm not really, but it kind of helps out. There's just so many variables going on when you're clamping, and if you put that layer of glue between the two pieces, all bets are off. As you start to apply pressure, the boards are moving. It really has nothing to do with the clamps at that point. Um, They tend to be, compare them to something else, and you might find them to be much more stable because of their sort of parallel nature. Um, But just the, the, the nature of the beast, when you have that many things going on at once, it's almost impossible to keep those pieces just dead on where you think they're going to go. Um, even just by tilting the clamp. So maybe the clamp head isn't perfectly flat on the surface. Maybe it's just slightly skewed. That's going to move the pieces around. Uh, And also I find that there is a big difference in how it clamps when you're looking vertically across the, the clamp head. So let's say you're doing a panel glue up. This is why you'll see a lot of woodworkers will alternate their clamps have one up, one down, one up, one down as you go across because it actually will induce a little bit of a bow into the panel if all your clamps are oriented the same way. And this just is a weird thing that happens with a lot of parallel clamps. It's just something you you get used to and you offset them and turn them around alternating to, to stop that from happening. So I, I don't know if it's truly saying they're not clamping perfectly parallel or what, but bottom line is the result you see it in the shop enough times, you know how to fix it, and it is what it is. So, Yeah, Sweet. this is definitely not confined just to parallel clamps either. I, every clamp that I've worked with, you get a little bit of that. Yeah. And uh, I like to rub the joint just a little bit to kind of give it some vacuum pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helps some of the slippage, but it, it just happens when you clamp down. 
Clamp it down. All right. Next one is from Ben. He says, I'm making a crib out of cherry and sapelli. Was going to use shellac finish, but I'm afraid it's not going to allow the sapelli to pop the way I want it to. Would oil under shellac be a better, um, would be better or stick with varnish? All right. So I put this in here to sort of make an example out of Ben in, in, the, in the nicest way. <laughs> no, not, not really. Um, the, the bottom line is this is one of those things, Ben, that you want to try. Because a lot of people will put oils and things under other finishes and sort of just go through the motions of doing it because they heard that this was going to make the wood look better. Um, But a lot of times you're just wasting time. You're wasting materials. Sometimes putting that oil under a particular finish makes absolutely no difference to the look, but you don't know because you haven't tried it. So the point is when you have these kinds of questions, find out the answer for yourself because there may be a certain amount of opinion in this. I may see something that you don't. Um, or you may see something that I don't. So I highly recommend make yourself a couple of scrap tests uh, and, and try them out in your shop. Get these answers for yourself so that you never have to, to to think like that. Again, you'll have the answer. You know that putting boiled linseed oil under that particular varnish makes zero difference or putting it under shellac as the case may be, and it makes zero difference. Or you may see that it does make a difference, but at least you'll know. All right, so that's kind of, I, I put that in there because I don't really know the answer to this. He's going to have to try it and, and see for himself if he can see a difference. Most of the time, I avoid doing things like that because putting oil on the wood just kind of extends the amount of time it takes me to finish the product, especially if I'm going to be putting a film on top of it. Most of the time, I just don't see the difference if I do a side-by-side with and without the oil. So uh, that's my sort of encouragement for everybody to just make a couple of test boards and, and test it for yourself. You know what I've always discovered when you get into a complicated formula? Things get complicated. (laughs) Yeah. When it comes to finishing, you're right. The more crap you add into it, the more potential for problems. And I I can't tell you how many times I've gotten an email from someone where it's like, okay, here's my finish regimen. Here's my recipe. And it's like a 10-step process. And Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it going, I could... I could name that finish, like like name that tune. I could make that finish in three notes. I, I can use one can. I can usually cut it in half um, and probably get something that is very very similar. Maybe not exactly the same, but pretty damn close. Uh, with a, with a more, I guess I won't say a guaranteed success rate, but a better chance of having success because there are just fewer things there as a potential to screw you up. So the answer is yes. Uh, yeah. Let's sum it up with yes. Okay. Cool. <laughs> All right, this comes from TimberDoc. He says, I know a twin tenon is useful to minimize ingrained glue surfaces for a rail under a table drawer, but what is the reason to use a double tenon on a wide table apron? Um, well, first of all, I didn't know that's why we used a twin tenon was to minimize ingrained glue surface. I never heard that before. I, I can see why you might say that. Um, I find another reason to use a, a twin tenon is to reduce twist, uh, especially mm-hmm. in a narrow piece. Uh, say, as he's saying, like the rail under a drawer, you've got that little narrow, maybe three quarter square or something similar to that piece that goes underneath it. Twin tenons side by side will prevent twist on that really narrow piece. Um, as far as using it on a wide, um, side or something like that, twin tenons can actually be used to control and help with wood movement a little bit. If you've got uh, one tenon across the entire width, that tenon, that greater surface area, the, you know, wood moves, we we think of it in terms of percentages. It moves a certain percentage. Well, that percentage is of that width. So if you've got a six inch wide tenon, uh, 10% of six inches is more than 10% of four inches. So you're going to get less 
movement inside. You have to accommodate for less movement inside the mortise. Second of all, there's a lot of times where uh, a twin tenon will have a little kind of stub tenon in between, and that is actually housed in a groove that connects those two uh, tenons. And perhaps only one tenon is actually glued and the other one is left loose or not necessarily loose, but dry. So it is allowed to expand and contract while anchoring it on the other tenon. With only one tenon, you don't have that option. Twin tenons allow that that ability to direct the movement up or direct the movement down depending on which tenon has been glued. Think breadboards as to why you would use multiple tenons on a breadboard as compared to one big giant tenon. Uh, the wood, if you glue it, you're going to be in trouble. Unless I suppose you just glue the center and then it gets just too complicated. Hmm. You've, hmm. you've me out with the talk about percentages. I just yeah, zoned hmm. out with the math. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is a math show. <laughs> I'm a woodworker. Math not hey, work for me. At least you didn't see me try to do the math live. That would have been really <laughs> ugly. Show I'm us. sure at some point we're, we're going to get some kickback. That's like, uh, Shannon's math was wrong. Yes, not only is his English bad, but his math is wrong too. Yeah, I think he was doing math and metrics, and that was the problem. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, so we have this next one from Alexander, and Alexander says, do you have a process? Actually, I should I should say Alexander sent a much longer email that had multiple questions, but I bro- broke it down to this this one because I'm like, those other ones are really complicated. So he says, do you have a process to design furniture from the moment you identify a need? Have you ever tried to design something to challenge yourselves in woodworking? And have you ever designed a piece that you weren't sure if you could actually build it? So the the first part of that, do you have a process to design furniture from the moment you identify a need? Yeah, I go to a catalog and I start looking to see what other people have done. (laughs) And then I go from there. But no, actually, uh, typically... Uh, a, a type of process that I have from the moment I identify a need is, first of all, I really figure out what at the most basic core of what that need is. What is it? What what do I need to do? Does it, do I, can I make it as simple as possible? And usually that's the goal I'm going to go for is make it simple and then, if necessary, add other things in there that might be the – uh, the, the icing on the cake. So maybe just a little bit of, of the design or something like that. So I'll go – First with the um, function and then to the form to try and make it look pretty and add add the other things. I know other people might actually go a different way. I don't know if that really helps out with that portion of the question. How about you guys? Do you have a process when you design furniture from the moment you identify the need? This is too complicated for me to answer. Okay. <laughs> it might it might yes. just be the yes. it might just be the fact that it's late in the game here, but okay. my brain isn't there and I honestly have no idea what you're asking me. Okay. All right. <laughs> Is well, that let's, okay? Let's, that, no, that's fine because I am actually I'm kind of I'm kind of that I'm looking at this question going, you know, I really should have had this one in the beginning. You know, the problem is Shannon and I are kind of like in Skype chat trying to to figure out like, okay, how many more questions are we doing? And I'm paying attention, moving <laughs> questions around and and then it's like it's like when you're in class and you're goofing off and the teacher that's when they look at you and they know that you're screwing around, so they ask. That's actually you the what I did do. You guys don't know, but I have the cameras on looking Thanks. at you guys. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. All right. So well, well, let's move on. I'm gonna move on to the Matt, What's short that? answer, I'm a form meets function guy, so that's okay. the first thing that I do. Uh, I have I have skipped that times in the past, and like it's bit me in the butt like 20 steps later when I realized that suddenly like someone's legs don't fit under this table or something like that, or mm-hmm. getting into and out of the bed is you know a, a recipe to break a hip. So it's form and function is first and foremost in my mind. Um, I don't know, call me uninventive, but <laughs> that's what I, I want to make sure that it works. 
well, though, actually, you know what? That that one also, Shannon, feeds perfectly into the, that second part of his question, which is, have you ever tried to design something to challenge yourself in woodworking? So it sounds like you do all the time, which is actually something that's very, very important. And, uh, and, and it leads into his third one, which is, have you designed a piece that you weren't sure if you could actually build it? Those are two things that you, you need to, as a woodworker, regardless of what level of woodworking you're at with your experience, you need to push yourself. You need to go out of your comfort zone at some point because it's the only way. And I know we've talked about this easily several times over the past 200 episodes. That is the only way that you will ever learn. So the answer is, have I ever tried to design something to challenge myself? Oh, yes. All the time. Every single time I tried to add just a little bit more, even if it looks like I'm doing the same thing over and over, uh, I am actually trying to make sure that I can I can replicate it because that is a huge challenge is being able to make sure that I can do the same joint and get the result that I expected from it. Uh, and then have I ever designed a piece that I wasn't sure I could actually build again all the time? Um, I'm convinced that everything I build is just going to fall apart. <laughs> nice. So do it, everybody, because challenging yourself is the only way that you'll ever learn. So true. All right. Last, uh, Joe. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that just sounded like a PSA. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this will be our last round of questions. Uh, I got one in here from our buddy Tom Buell. He says, I've heard and read from many sources that oil slash varnish are not appropriate for interior finishing of chest of drawers and such as the smell never totally disappears. Most recommend a thin coat of shellac. Sounds like good advice, but whenever I consider the approach with oil varnish for the exterior, I'm puzzled about the boundaries between interior and exterior. I see in between areas how to define and handle these. Uh, would you mask off the determined boundary? Many interior surfaces might be quite visible, so I'd want them to look the same as the exterior. Help, I'm confused. And he has a part two where he says, uh, how about not finishing the interior at all? Um, I do buy... I do not buy the different expansion rates for finished and unfinished. Uh, maybe where uh, where issues for some areas thoughts. Okay, so I think this is a great question, Tom, because I hear the same thing, and I've got the same question you do. You know, when you, it's easy enough to just say, "Oh, just use this on the inside and use this on the outside," but anyone who actually finishes enough will tell you it's very difficult to do that because any finish you apply tends to overlap. A corner, and, and let's let's look at a case of um, a case of drawers, a chest of drawers kind of thing. Uh, as you wrap around the front, even if it's a face frame, at what point do you stop with your oil and transition to the quick drying shellac finish? Uh, wherever you stop, it seems like you're going to have some overlap between the two. And if you don't have an overlap, you'll probably have a very thick layer of pulled finish right at that corner where the two finishes meet, which is also not very attractive. So either people are okay with that or they're coming up with some other type of trick. Um, now, for me, what what I would do is probably coat, let's say you're going with a, a varnish finish. Um, and I've seen your stuff, Tom. It doesn't look to me like you put lots of thick finish on your project, so you're probably going with a very similar type of finishing method that I use, which is usually, I don't know, maybe three coats of a wiping varnish. It's not very thick. So what I would do is probably coat the entire project, all the visible parts, and that includes any of those interior surfaces that are going to potentially be seen, and I'll coat them. Now, there will be interior parts that you won't touch at this point because they don't uh, they don't factor into anything that's visible on the outside of the project. Um, so like the back panel, for instance, or maybe the bottoms or parts of the, the dust frames, maybe you'll never see those. Uh, so And also the drawer, of course, the inside parts of the drawer. Uh, but just hit the things you're going to see with your oil, bring it up to however many coats you want, and call it done from there. Then I would switch to the shellac. Use the shellac on the parts that haven't been touched yet. Use them on those transitional parts too, but thin it out as you're applying it. So as you get closer to uh, the area where the transition occurs, wipe 
harder, for lack of a better phrase. Just <laughs> wipe it so that the layer is actually much thinner so you don't have that opportunity for pulled finish at the, the junction point between those two finishes. And really, that one coat of shellac could be enough because you, you haven't really coated the inside with an oil-based finish. There's just a couple parts that are going to have a little bit of that oil-based finish. Well, that shellac coat should take care of the odor and all the rest of the parts are getting only shellac, uh, so you won't have much in the way of a, a you know a retained odor inside the thing. So that that's how I would handle it, and you should end up somewhere pretty close with a nice finish that wraps around the corners nicely, and only that one thin top layer of shellac uh, is all you really have to worry about. And, and into your second question, you said, do we even have to, basically, do we have to finish the insides at all? Uh, with, with a properly constructed piece of furniture, I, I agree with you that if it's if it's done right, you probably can just leave it unfinished and it would be fine. But I personally don't like doing that. It just makes me feel better to have some kind of finish in there. And that's where shellac comes in as a quick drying finish. Uh, I think it's a great solution for that. Part of the problem, if you don't finish the inside, is you're going to run into the same exact issue you're talking about using two finishes. How do you transition from your finished area to your non-finished area in those transition zones? So you can make the argument not to to use it for lo- like logistic reasons, but what happens when... You know, when you have finish next to no finish, you kind of have the same problem. So I think it's a good idea to finish it if, if for nothing else than that reason. Uh, that's it. Cool. All right. Well, our um, scrap pile is organized by kind of topics and it's gotten really long and I drove all the way down to the bottom of the list to pull this one out because we completely neglect wood turning from time to time. So, so this was sent in like last year. Probably. So Technically, it was two this, years this ago. Is from, this is from Jeff. Jeff, we didn't forget about you. Just for some reason, wood turning is probably alphabetical. Wood turning. Well, no. Whatever. No, because no, I, have, I have something else way at the bottom that has nothing to do with anything near the end of the episode. All right. So don't worry, Jeff. There are, even, there are people who are even more neglected than you. So there we go. <laughs> uh, Jeff says, I just bought an easy wood tools finisher. And apparently he bought it on a recommendation. So cool. <laughs> he says, I enjoy it. So I'm even more relieved. I am now tempted to buy more of these tools and I'm finding that I can purchase many different carbide cutting tools for cheaper, um, cheaper than the easy wood tools. Uh, Robert Sorby has a line of carbide tools that are more modular with one handle and many cutting attachments for it. The one difference I've noticed is that the only tool with a square neck is easy wood tools and all the rest have a round neck. Will it be much more challenging to keep the carbide tools with a round neck level and true while turning, or will it be similar to using traditional tools? This is a kind of unsung part of easy wood tools. Uh, you are essentially locking in the geometry. When you present one of those easy wood tools to the wood, that geometry is locked in place because you're supposed to bring it across level and that square neck keeps it level on the other plane on the tool rest. When you, it is not to say that you can't use it outside of that fixed geometry, but it doesn't cut as well and doesn't cut as efficiently. And sometimes you'll get catches if you start to turn away from that. The reason I say that is specifically with the easy wood finisher, that's the round blade. You can actually roll beads and coves the traditional way by actually twisting the handle and rolling it over the edge. You can do it that way, but it, it requires a very different grip because obviously the wood spinning towards you wants to grab that tool and kind of slam it down onto the rest. 
The same thing will happen with um, certain skew chisel techniques and things where you're essentially balancing on an edge and the motion of the tool will want to twist the tool in your hand. And you, the turner, has to kind of resist that motion. So it requires a little bit more vigilance in using it. It's not to say that you can't do it or even that it's unsafe in some respects. Um, I have used some of these carbide tools with round necks. Um, specifically hollowing tools that have round necks and also that swan neck uh, dealy on it. It's meant to get inside uh, tight curves and things like that. And every time you use it, the rotation of the lathe wants to throw and throw that uh, that cutting action out of the way. The good news is it usually wants to throw it away from the wood so you don't get a catch, but it can be really difficult and you find yourself, or at least I found myself kind of white knuckling it to keep the geometry just right as I moved and manipulated the tool to follow uh, uh, a contour, like one of Matt's contours, as I, as, <laughs> I, as I turned into those inside contours. Herba, herba. Yeah, submit your picture. I'll put you up on my Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> so long story short, too late. For someone that is learning, I, I think that EasyWood Tools is probably the better solution here because it's just one less thing to think about. If you get a little bit more advanced and you do find yourself wanting to kind of use some of those techniques where you're rolling beads and, and twisting the handle and moving into, I think, frankly, this runs into a lot more often in faceplate turning where you've got inside curves and things like that to deal with, I think then it makes more sense to maybe move to one of those rounded tools or probably at that point to move to a traditional tool instead of one of the carbide tips because I think you're going to have more flexibility there in the long run. So, you know, it is one of those things. There's a lot of knockoffs coming out now with this carbide line. And you may think, oh, they're all the same and this one's cheaper. Uh, as a user of many of them and as a lover of easy wood tools, I do think that that square neck, um, it's worth its weight in gold, frankly. Um, I'm going to tell Heather. <laughs> She's going to be jealous. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> you said you, you, said you, you said love it. You're a lover of easy wood tools. Okay. Lover. <laughs> All right. Well, that, uh, that should do it. Right, let's get off of that before we get a call from Heather. Lover. <laughs> She'd be very upset. Uh, so, all right. Lots of questions there. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. That was, whew, I need a drink of water. <sighs> I'm exhausted. Yeah, that was rough. Um, you I know what? I could do another 200 Let's do it shows. again. Let's go. <laughs> Let's keep no, going. No, no. There's still in, more in the pile, right? Uh, that will be cleared out in the new year, by the way. We're going to start over fresh uh, in January. But anyway, so it's been 200 episodes. And you know what I got queued up here? I know we've probably done this in the past, but it is always fun to go back and listen to the first Wood Talk episode. It's it's and by fun I mean exceptionally painful for, for well, at yes least it is, Mark. For for Matt and I. Now it's probably funny for Shannon because he wasn't here during this I awfulness. This. Um, but let, let's see what that sounds like. <clears throat> You're listening to Wood Talk Online with your host, Mark and Matt. Take it away, boys. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Wood Talk Online. My name is Matt Vanderlis, and I'm the host of Matt's Basement Workshop Podcast. And I'm Mark Spagnolo, host of the Wood Whisperer Video Podcast. Uh, we're both the hosts of Wood Talk Online. Just terrible. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh it's God. like, uh, hey, 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 wife, you have a voice. Come here. <laughs> Do our <laughs> intro for us. 
<laughs> and I remember being so excited about it. I still am. Nicole's amazing. Absolutely love, love that voice. Uh, but yeah, it was just like, hey, can your wife do something? Because mine won't. Yeah, why not? Um, you know, the, the good thing is, I mean, listening back, it really wasn't that bad. I think our intro, we scripted it out, which oh, we weren't so good at making it sounding like making it sound unscripted. <laughs> but I don't know what you're talking about, Mark. Stop. Wait, what? That's very funny, <laughs> Matt. Ha ha. Uh, yeah, so uh, I hope I hope you've enjoyed the ride since then, with uh, especially with the addition of Shannon. I think that really uh, rounded out. And we've heard feedback from people um, numerous times about how that has really rounded out our uh, sort of what what we offer in terms of perspectives, uh, trying to cover different perspectives. And I got to say, it wasn't even an intentional thing. Like, hey, let's get a, a full on hand tool guy on here. It was really about, hey, let's let's get someone on here that we don't mind talking to every week. You know. <laughs> Uh, was was I actually a full-on hand tool guy when I started? I don't think you when, were, really. I started down that slope, but I still had a joiner and a table saw and a bandsaw and all that. Yeah, so, so I mean, you were sort of just evolving into, into the hand tool school guy um, at the time. So it really was just, let's get somebody who we don't, I mean, literally do not mind talking to on a weekly basis because Matt, Matt and I enjoyed each other's company. So if we're going to add a third, we better have someone that we also like to <laughs> spend time talking with. Yeah. And just, just on the side, folks, they enjoy their company, each other's company a lot, a little bit too much. It's, it's a little it's awkward fun, sometimes. Yeah. It's yeah. a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Even- my family has said many times, uh, get off the computer with Mark. <laughs> it's a little bit of an, un, it's an unhealthy bromance, I think. But uh, I just quietly excuse myself sometimes because I, I start to get that ewe feeling in my stomach. Yeah. Makes but, you know, I think what needs to go in the Wood Whisperer store now is the ringtone of Nicole saying, take it away, boys. Take it away, boys. Oh, uh, who was it? Ringtone. Do you guys remember? Oh, I wish I had the clip. There was some, an Australian fan had uh, his daughter had the cutest little Australian oh, accent yeah. and she said, yes. take it away, boys. It was flipping adorable. Yes. And I can't, I have to go back and find that. Yeah. Uh, so there, there was also, uh, we had a, um, uh, a Hispanic uh, friend who did a uh, uh, thing for the Wood, wood Whisperer. Didn't oh, that was for the Wood yes. Whisperer. That was, yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that was the Wood Whisperer intro. Yeah. <laughs> that was, yeah. uh, I think it was from Brazil, uh, okay. I think. Um, you know, and I, I wanted to, to just kind of take a moment to um, – to sort of reminisce about our favorite wood talk moments. And I didn't prepare ahead of time for this. It just kind of came to me that we should do that. So uh, think about it, you two, uh, because I've got mine and you, you feel free to share this one with me. But for me, my favorite thing was uh, two years ago at Woodworking in America, we had a little get together and we had no idea what to expect in terms of, uh, you know, sort of attendance and who was going to show up. And we planned this little thing at the, on a top floor of a restaurant. And I was blown away, especially because Wood Talk is just a little side project for us. Uh, we've only started to take it a little bit more seriously in terms of monetization and, and trying to make it a viable podcast. But we've always done it for the love of it and for the fun. So it always surprises me when I see the numbers behind the show. And, um, I remember going up there going, wait, is there another party going on here? Like what, what are these people doing here? And then you realize these are all people who are just in the community, you know, virtual friends and real life friends of ours. And it was the coolest friggin' moment ever. Um, and just being able to, to hang out and share some food with all those people that was probably, and not even, it wasn't a recorded moment, you know, so it's not even like an on, on the air moment, but it was definitely my favorite wood talk moment. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. That's a hard that one was, to beat, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, w- I was so excited when we came around the corner and people were sitting there and it wasn't just like one of those where they just stared at us like, who are these nuts? <laughs> they actually were like excited, excited to see us in the way that it's like only woodworkers could be excited for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was cool. Well, I have a favorite moment that actually was on air. 
And ironically, we talked about it shortly before we recorded. It's probably why it's fresh in my mind. But mm. the um, the saw stop conversation with current Matt and old Matt. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the Technically, best. Technically, that would be old Matt with younger Matt. That was awesome. Yeah. That was just great. Well, the thing is, how what, 2006 was when we started the show, Matt? Yep. Okay, yeah. so since 2006, it's now 2014, people. Um, there are changes, you know, and that's the thing. I, I would love for someone to actually take the time. No one's going to do this because it's crazy, but take the time to, to point out the things where we either contradict ourselves or we've completely <laughs> changed our mind on certain things. I mean, it's, that's a long time. We're going, we're going to be hitting 10 years pretty soon. And of course we change because the whole thing is, I think all three of us, the last thing we ever want to do is be set in our ways. Part of our whole thing with wood talk is to be open-minded and to, to, to embrace the fact that that change is going to happen. Preferences change. Uh, we'll probably be the last people to lock into the thing where you start going, Oh, there's only one way to do this. Right. Um, yep. that's just not who we are. Uh, so I think the fact that we have changed over the years is kind of just putting our money where our mouth is when we, when we talk about who we are, uh, as people in the craft. Right. Well, you know, one of my favorite moments or the favorite moment, in fact, I was sitting here looking for it cause I know it's around here someplace. Uh, Early on, again, when we were starting uh, the height of the uh, Iraq war and everything was going on, and we heard quite frequently from many of our, our vets that were in the middle of combat and stuff talking about how this was like one of the things, us along with very many other people, we can't say that we were the only ones, but we gave them a, a, a taste of home you mm-hmm. know, when they absolutely needed it, and we got a really great letter from a uh, a pilot. I know I've talked about this one before, uh, talking about how his wife would record the shows and that helped him out immensely. In fact, I know if we went digging through the emails, there are quite a few of them in there. They're like, you guys have no idea how much you helped me get through this. So again, it's another one of those. The audience is what made this for me. I mean, that was like the absolute highlight. I showed it to my family and they're like, oh, that's your handwriting. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> you wrote this, you liar. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it really is a big component of it. And frankly, it's, it's the only reason we really do it. I mean, now we've get, we do get a little bit of money. You guys have uh, heard some ads make their way into the show. I got to tell you, that's not, that's not a lot of money between three people, you know? So it isn't like this is a for-profit venture that, you know, we're only doing it for the money. I think people know by this time that we do it because we love doing it. We love woodworking. We love podcasting. Uh, you guys are getting paid. Uh, I forgot. I'm sorry, Shannon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wait well, a minute. As the junior member of Wood Talk, I may have uh, just much smaller. I'm still the apprentice. I yeah, know. yeah, a little more time. Seven years. You, you only start to make money after five years. Just <laughs> you know, it's just it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, so the only thing that I think is missing from the 200th episode, there's no question from Roberto. <gasps> you know what? Hold on a second. <laughs> I was just looking through the scrap pile. There's no Roberto. I thought I thought I had a voicemail from him, but I don't. Oh, that's a bummer. Well, you know, Roberto is always with us in spirit. He's kind of been here since the beginning. <laughs> and Roberto has changed also. He he moved from one side of the country to the other, if I remember right. Is uh, he now Roberto from Ohio? A, I think he's in Chicago, isn't he? In Illinois. He went from New Mexico to Illinois. Yeah. Pretty yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. There you go. 201, <laughs> 201. 201. Show up. Right. All right. So 200 episodes behind us. I hope you guys will be with us for 200 more. God forbid. And uh, if you want to see that happen, one of the ways to do that these days, because, you know, 
Shannon does cost money. He's very expensive to bring on the show. Um, I need a lot of air freshener in this room right now, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dog farts. Wonderful. Yes. Um, So if you do want to support us, you can do that by doing a recurring donation. Just go to woodtalkshow.com, looking at left-hand column. And there's a couple of links there for small dollar amount uh, recurring donations and also one-time donations that you can make uh, to help keep the wheels spinning on this uh, sweet little bus of ours, this love bus that we've got here. You can, a very short one. <laughs> it is a little bit too short. Uh, you can also buy a Wood Talk t-shirt at twwstore.com and show your support that way. And if you want to just leave us a review in the iTunes store, we appreciate that too. Just find us, uh, look look up Wood Talk. For some reason, if you type Wood Talk as one word in certain uh, operating systems, I guess like on the Windows platform, it doesn't show up, but you have to have like Wood Space Talk. It's the weirdest thing. Anyway, what? Look us up. It's stupid Apple stuff. Uh, look us up there. Give us a five-star rating, and we will uh, read your review on the show, most likely. And uh, Matt, I guess that's about all I got. Why don't you give them the contact info, and we can get out of here. All right. Hey, folks, if you have comments or topic suggestions, because we got plenty of questions. No, I'm just kidding. You could always <laughs> send us more questions. You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180, especially if you're Roberto. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's shows or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. And because it's a special 200th episode, I want to remind all of you that you're going to find all of us at our own websites. And that's Mark over at thewoodwhisperer.com, Shannon at renaissancewoodworker.com, and Matt over at mattsbasementworkshop.com. And that's where you're going to find some amazing woodworking goodness. And you can even see how we've evolved on our own things and then come together to evolve together Mm. on Wood Talk. It is pretty awesome. Did you notice how you threw in the Matt's Basement Workshop at the end? And that's where you can find some really amazing things. <laughs> well <laughs> well done. Do that? Well oh. done. I think this oh. I think this Patreon thing is it's getting to Matt's head here. Oh, there's oh, people yeah. giving him money. Which by the way, let's go ahead and mention that. Uh, patreon.com slash Matt's Basement Workshop if you want to kick a little money Matt's way and get some extras as well. You can get some extra content that you're not going to be able to see if you just watch the free show. Uh, well, there is there is only the free show. This is just bonus stuff that you can get on top of it and, and help support one of the guys who helped create this whole thing of online woodworking media uh, that That's we right. all know and love these days. Thank you. And remember, there is the special uh, level that will stop me dead in my tracks. So, $1 million. That's right. So contact me if you want to be that benefactor. <laughs> right. All right. 200 shows behind us, guys. Let's do a couple hundred more before we call it quits. We're seriously, we're not going to leave the show. I think we'll probably just do this forever. Yeah, I'll be in my deathbed and be like, roll the microphone over. (laughs) Hold on, I'm coughing. All right, that's terrible. People die. It's a terrible thing, Matt. Shut up. Oh, sorry. All right. I'm so sorry. (laughs) We'll catch you next time. See you, everybody. See you. Sorry. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.